Um, we're, we're in this series uh, looking at different themes or big ideas that one way to study the Bible is, you know, book by book. Um, the, another way to study is you pick a thread in the story and you kind of trace that thread all throughout all the books or many books. But point is from beginning to end and you see how the story's tethered. You see how the story is really is one unified story talking about one big message. And so it helps us understand God's redemptive history, what he's doing in time and space. And so we've been looking at all of these and uh, we looked at the idea of heaven and earth, these these two places or spheres, maybe uh, where that that in the garden, we see them together and they come apart with sin. And then these moments where they sort of touch and interact holy places and then at the end of history, they come back together. We talked about this concept of law and the idea of law and how do we understand that as Christians. And um, one thing I was disappointed about missing last week is I wanted to see if you guys had practiced. Do you remember, you remember the Ten Commandments? Any, anyone here practice the Ten Commandments over there once even or like run over in your head? Okay, okay, a couple of you, good. Well, I hope you'll, again, I hope this is something that we're kind of getting some big nuggets here as we, like, big takeaways that, that, that we'll be able to say, I, I better understand the Bible so I'm not so intimidated to just crack those pages and read through it. I'm not so intimidated by that process. Tonight what I want to look at is this idea of, of holiness, Holiness, we hear all, it's in the Old Testament, significantly, it's in the New Testament, it's all throughout, but this, this idea of holiness, and if you want to follow along on your, in your bullets and on the inside on the left hand page is, uh, is an outline that we'll kind of walk through a bunch of this and try to hit as much of it as we can. Um, holiness is a word, this is in point one. If you could boil it down to prob- probably the most basic thing that it means, it, it means to set something aside from everything else. To, to make something in some way distinct or, or different than just what's common, if that makes sense. That, that's sort of at the core level of what holiness means. Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this concept referred to Israel, we see it referred to the church, to different people, places, and that sort of thing. This idea of, of holiness. The first two things... In the Bible, that ever get this label put on them, the first one is a day. It's time. It says, the Sabbath day shall be called holy. Anyone remember what, which commandment the Sabbath day is? Huh? Four. Okay, nice. Nice. That means you did practice a little bit here over the break. Sabbath day, Genesis 2-3. Um, God commands them, he says... Um, he, he sanctifies this day or sets it aside from all, all the other common days. He says it's a day of rest and you're to rest from all of your work. And you're to enjoy the goodness of what I have created. That's the very first thing that he calls set aside or holy. The second time we come across this word is referred to space. It's referred to the ground. This is in Exodus 3. The ground around the burning bush of God's presence as, as he first reveals himself to this man named Moses. Um, and God's presence, it's so powerful and unique that it makes 
the very area around it holy. And so the closer you get to the center of it, the, the more separate, the more sacred, the more unique, the more set aside that this very area is. But in both cases, the holiness of these things, it, it's honored by by treating them, treating the day, the time, or treating the particular place with with special care. Meaning, you're not going to do um, certain activities on that day or in that space that you would normally do. What God is doing is creating categories in people's mind where categories don't exist. Okay, because remember those two spheres in this in this reality, heaven and earth, everything's sacred. It's been broken. And so humanity has been living for who knows how long in the what we might think of as they don't have this word, but the secular. Everything is, if you use a religious term, profane. Everything's just common. And this is one of those touch points again where the two spheres, God's saying, no, there are touch points. There are sacred moments. There's sacred space because there's sacred reality to life. Secular world is not all that there is. And so in the rest of the Bible, all kinds of things can be holy. People are called holy. You've got like the Levites. They're the ones of the tribe that are set aside or certain individuals set themselves aside. Certain places are said to be holy. And so they're revered certain things, objects in the temple certainly are. And then again, even times, uh, certain calendrical celebrations, you know, the, the day of atonement, it's a sacred day. It's something you do something different on that day than you do on any other day. So there's sacred days in the week, there's sacred weeks in the year, sacred months, all, all these sorts of things. Time and reality and life, the Israelites are learning, is not just mundane. There's a sacredness to it all. And so number two, people, places, and things are considered holy because they have somehow a close relationship with God, who is the very source and definition of what holiness means. Um, God's holiness is a way of talking about God's nature and his character um, as the most unique, the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most good being that exists in all of space and time. The first time that God is called holy is Exodus 15. God has just delivered uh, the Israelites from Egypt. Uh, Moses is leading them. He's taken them across. He's split the waters. They've gone through on dry ground. Pharaoh's armies come rushing after them, chariots and horses to absolutely trample on them. And then these waters collapse. And there's this, there's this beautiful poem, I encourage you to read it, in Exodus 15, where, where Moses kind of stops just after seeing all of this. And just, he has this awe moment where he just says, God, you are so wonderful. You have this. You're, there's nothing that can, you know, it, there's nothing that can squelch your, squelch your power. There's, there's no force in the world, no force of nature that you don't have power over. Nothing can stop you. And he goes on and on. And then in verse 11, he has this, this statement where, where he says, who among the gods, because he lives in a polytheistic world, there's lots of gods, lots of things calling for our attention. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Now, Yahweh is the name that God told him earlier. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? It's the first time that word is used in scripture to refer to God. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory. 
working wonders. See, God's holiness, God's holiness is uniquely connected to the fact that he is the creator. It's uniquely connected to the fact that he is the author of life. He is the author of what's beautiful. He is the author of what's good. He is the author of what is true. And so this is what Moses sees when he sees this God has the ability to interact with the physical forces of the world. He moves the waters and then he collapses them when he wants. Now, centuries later, you have the Hebrew prophets who say things like God holds all the waters in his hand. Moses is just starting to get his mind around this. Moses, you know, he's worshipped other gods his whole life. And he's going, wow, this God's unique. He has access or power not just in one location, not like he's the God of this location. He's the God of the universe. He's different. That means holy. He's somehow different than all other gods, different than all other goods. What's the commandment that says you shall have no other gods before me? The first commandment, do not have any other gods before me. And so God's holiness, it's, it's also connected to his character uh, as the source of all moral goodness and purity. Uh, Leviticus 11.44, let me read this passage to you. It says, I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves to be holy. So he's using the word that describes him different. Consecrate yourselves to be holy because I... Am holy, So he seems to be making a direct correlation to you're going to live your life in accordance with me. I'm the North Star. I'm the I'm the center gravitational pull of your universe. That's how you to orient and orbit your life is around me. Be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean. That's a word we're going to pick up here in a little bit. This concept of clean and unclean. Don't make for yourselves unclean. Uh, make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. So there's this holiness concept there that certainly applies to him. And then he says, I'm going to apply it to you. It's going to have a direct impact on you as well. Now, it's difficult for us, I think, in the Western uh, hyper-individualistic culture that we're in to, to wrap our minds around this whole concept of, of um, finding something which is so utterly holy that, that we... We don't have any claim on. It's, it's absolute authority. We've, we're a culture which has come through the 60s of the famous statement, question, what? question authority, right? Question authority. And that, that, that's kind of permeated our culture and our Western individualistic thinking. I don't know how many of you guys heard about there was uh, this incident at Yale University. This was this last fall. And at, at Yale, uh, around Halloween time, there was a statement that was made by the administration saying, uh, just be aware, don't, don't, don't wear costumes that are offensive or anything like that. Well, this one professor who's uh, administrator, professor, made a comment about saying, well, you know, free speech also, we want to you know, honor that. So if somebody does something that you don't like, don't make a fuss, just look away, you know, kind of thing. And there was this huge incident where this administrator and professor was out um, walking through the commons area. It was, um, see if I can get his name here, professor of uh, sociology. Um, let's see here. 
Christakis was his name, Professor Christakis. And as he's walking through, these students surround him and start this yelling this profanity at him, dropping the F-bomb and, and just cursing him, cursing You know, how could you do that? Who are you to say? Just, I mean, things that, in my perspective, you think this kid should just be thrown out of school. You know, screaming at an administrator at an Ivy League university, but with this sense of, who do you think you are? And at the end of her statement, what she kept after all the expletives, what she said is, your job is to make this university the way we want it. That was her statement. Your job is to make this university, what we do, what, what's thought, what's talked about, the way we want as students. That's kind of this idea. It's so interesting. In, in the book of Isaiah, and I don't, I don't think this is, I mean, I said this is kind of a Western... Uh, you know, kind of post-sexual revolution, post-question authority. I think this is kind of a human nature issue. Uh, the book of Isaiah, in, in chapter 44, Isaiah is talking to people who, who have this view about God. They go about it a little differently, but it's, it's this idea of making idols. And let me read you some of these words for you. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 14, he's talking about the person who, who fashions an idol, goes out to the woods, gets a tree, and cuts it down and then makes something out of it. And he says this. He's talking about the carpenter or the person who does this. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. I mean, he cuts it down. He brings it into his house. He uses it for fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire. He, he bakes bread over this wood that he's burning. But then he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat, eats his fill, and warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have fire. And then he says, What does he do with the rest of it? You know, he's made a meal with it. He's warned himself. From the rest of it, let's see, what should I do with the rest of it? I'll make a god, an idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, save me, you're my god. No one stops to think, Isaiah says. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate it. Maybe I'll take the rest of it and I'll make, an, I'll make my god out of it. I mean, see, what he's saying is, th think about the logic being used here. You're taking something, and you're, you know, you're making food over it, and, and, and you're using it to warm yourself, and then you take the rest of it, and you, and you make a God out of it. And you say, that's my God. That's the God who tells me what's right and wrong. Now, before we pass judgment, again, I don't think our culture is that different. We make up idols, not out of wood, but what? Out of our minds, right? Out of our own minds. Um... I think God is a God who doesn't judge. I just, I just think he's a God who, he, he's just kind of generally, in a you know, weak, thin way, kind and loving. Um, but he would never punish anyone. Or no, I'll make up a God out of my mind. I think, I think God is a God who, who, who would never tell me that I have a desire that I shouldn't act on. He, he would never make me to be a being which is called to die to self and, and not act out on some desire. I should never have to deny myself in any way. See, the point is this. We don't make idols out of wood. We make them out of, the, out of our mind. The same mind that thinks adulterous thoughts creates a God who says, that's the God that I want to have. Using those same thinking and feeling and all that sort of thing. And you know what? 
you and I, we do that. We can pray to that God our whole lives, just like Isaiah was talking to them. Go ahead, pray to that God. You know, you know cut, they would cut themselves, you know, thinking that God would respond some way. You know, go ahead and cut yourself. Do it. You know, see, see if he does anything. Pray to that God. Nothing will happen in your life. If that God is dead, he's mute. He uses all these illustrations of he's blind. But he, there is no God, is his point. That's a worthless God. See, that's why you and I, sinful, loving God, but sinful and broken, have to return to Scripture. I, I, I have to let Scripture examine me and my life. Because the God that I want to exist at least in parts of my life, is not the real God that exists. And so as I go back to scriptures, I read, as I say, okay, well, God, well, who, who do you say you are? You know, that, that's really what I need to know. Because it's not enough to just be sincere. You know, um, it's, a, it's a very, very different picture. Remember the time when uh, God, uh, Moses first comes to God? And he reveals his name. We talked about that a second ago. And he, you know, to the burning bush. And as he's come close, you know, first he said, remember, this is sacred space. He says, you know, you know take your sandals off. And he talks to him. He comes. He says, what I want you to do. I want you to go deliver my people. They're in Egypt. And this whole thing. He goes, okay. And just as he's leaving, he goes, oh, and who, what should I call you again? You know, like, who, who should I say sent me? I don't, there's thousands, there's millions of gods. Who should I say sent me? And remember his answer? He says, well, we translate, I am that I am. I am that I am. Um, now, notice what he did not say. He did not say, I am whoever you think I am. He didn't say, um, I am whoever you want me to be as long as you're really sincere in your heart. <laughs> That's kind of our Western understanding as well. You know, as long as you're sincere and you believe with all your heart, that's fine. No. There's a certain specific God, and it's really easy to miss him if I just let my own mind kind of create who he is. That's why this concept of holiness is so important. God is utterly different than anything you've encountered. He is so different. And scripture just shatters all of my idols. That's why the second commandment, you shall don't make any graven images. We kind of look at that and go, oh, that, that'd probably be good if you were into idols. No, 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 no. Graven images is any image concept you have of God that is inaccurate. If you have a God that you know, is, my God is only going to do that which is wonderful and nice and, and, and you know, makes me have goosebumps and is happy, that's an image. That's an absolute idol. If you have a view of God which is all about your pleasure and your fulfillment, and he would never want you, he would never allow you to go through a difficult circumstances. He would never want you to stay in a marriage when you're not fulfilled because it's stifling who you are. That's an idol. That's an absolute image. That's breaking the second commandment. And then we say, well, I know God wants me to be happy. How do I know that? Well, because that's the God I've created in my mind. There is a truth about God. And so that's why we look at Scripture. So let's go on. Number three, unpacking this idea of holiness. He is totally other. God's holiness is so pure and good. Now, this is a really interesting one. That it poses a paradox for humans living in a world ruined by sin. Let me give you kind of a, a metaphor that I think it's a great metaphor. I mean, it's, I don't know, I don't, we probably come up with a better one, but I think it's a really, really good metaphor. Think of our sun and our solar system, okay? Our sun is good. It's, it's, it's the source of life, right, for us on our planet at least. Uh, it's extremely powerful. So in that sense, we could say the sun is, it's holy. 
its power is so magnificent. It's so good. Okay, because the source of life is extremely powerful. It's so good. Um, The problem is, what happens the closer you get to the sun? Think about all the space around the sun is, in this sense, holy, powerful, good. You know, the closer you get to it, if you're not of the same character or nature of the sun, what's going to happen? I mean, you're going to you're going to get burned up. Right? This is this is this great paradox that's presented so early on in Scripture is that I made for God. And yet the very thing I made for a need like the breath I breathe, if I get too close, will destroy me. Not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And I'm not. <laughs> that's this great paradox that the Israelites face so Early on, Isaiah 6, 3 says, and they, this is speaking of the angels, Isaiah's having this vision, God's given this vision of God and what he's like and you know, his holiness, this thing we're talking about. And he says, um, uh, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in the ancient Semitic language where you don't have periods and exclamation points and you can't italicize, the way you italicize and underline and bold is you do it three times. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so this is this great paradox. And you can, you can again, we can kind of move the metaphor even further that all the space around the sun is, is holy. All the space around God is holy. That's this picture that we see of Moses at the burning bush and his power and purity it's dangerous because we're corrupt we're 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 um, broken mortals corrupted by sin again not because the source is bad but because it's so unfiltered good in any way and so this paradox is seen maybe most clearly and this, this concept in the Old Testament of the temple. We've talked about this. As we go in the series, we're looking at these threads. A lot of these threads are going to like overlap and they're going to touch. Oh, yeah, I remember we talked about law or we talked about temple or we talked about you know, heaven and earth, whatever it might be. But the temple or the, or the tabernacle, while it was still mobile, is, um, is maybe the clearest representation of this idea of God's presence living amidst the Israelites. And so the temple had to be kept separate from all kinds of impurity. And again, we kind of mentioned that word. We'll talk a little bit more about what exactly that that means. But this this location here, what they call the Holy of Holies, this was it was it was like we said the other week. It was sort of the hot spot of God's presence. And now the builders of the temple themselves remember when we talked about, you know, they said, you know, Solomon said the whole earth can't contain you, God. You're bigger than that. How in the world are you going to live in a, in a, in a temple built by hands? So it's not that the idea they thought, we're keeping God in a box. This is that touch point between heaven and earth where God said, here's where I will, here's where I will interact with you. This is where my presence will be. And it will be separate. It will be holy. Totally different than any. You don't do normal stuff there. No one can enter except one person, the high priest. And not any time he wants, only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And not in any way he wants. He has to be sure that he has gone through all these purification processes so that when he walks in here, he is pure. He's, he's not walking in sort of 
uh, you know, haphazardly in any way. But it's, it's a unique presence of God that he is walking into. And so, and so when it comes to holiness, the Israelites develop certain concepts. Okay, I get the idea of moral holiness, right? You know, uh, love your father and mother, don't, you know, don't kill, you know, a lot of the Ten Commandments, some of the others. This is, this is sort of moral purity, being morally pure. I get that. That makes sense. But then the Israelites also had this concept of being ritually pure. Now, this is a concept that kind of, we, I don't have categories for this, because it's not within my Western common experience. But it was very common in their experience. Um, the idea of, of ritual purity was the idea that you would cut yourself off or separate. Remember, holiness means to separate. Separate yourself from anything that represents death in any way. And so he, he gave them different examples. He, he said things like um, skin diseases. Um, any, any sort of skin diseases... It's, you need to separate from. If you have one, you remove yourself from the people until it's until you're better. Uh, dead bodies or carcasses, you're not supposed to touch any of those. That that will make you ritually impure or unclean. Um, certainly, certain bodily fluids, all of these represented in some way or another the idea of death. And he was creating categories and saying, "I'm a god of life, but there's also another path. It's a path of death." And so he said, I want you to be ritually pure. Now, here's the thing that we have to get our mind around. This is why this is hard for us as Westerners. To be, to be ritually impure did, did, didn't mean you were immoral. Okay? It, it's totally different than moral purity. Ritual purity, it, it wasn't a sin. You were impure. You, you would have to wait a while. You might have to take a bath. You might have to do certain things. Wait a week and then you were fine. And then you could go back into the presence of God. It was all about the state. He was trying to create in people's mind. When you walk into the very hot spot presence of God. You have to be pure. So he's creating this, these categories. Their cons, these concepts in their mind. And this is what. If, you, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus. And it seems like, what in the world is going on here? What, you know, what is this and all these laws and purity laws and all these sorts? This is what it's about. He's giving the Israelites these categories of here's life and here's death. You're going to live a life which seeks purity, not just morally, but ritual purity. And because there's also another way of life. And this isn't about moral improvement. If he would have just said the moral thing, people would have just said, okay, I'll just be good and go to love me. He goes, no, no, no. It's not about moral improvement. That's, that's religion. This is something very, very different for them. And so for about 600 years, this same concept is developed. It goes on. The people live under these concepts of moral purity as well as ritual purity. But then years later, about 600 years later, this guy named Isaiah appears. We read a little bit from him earlier. But Isaiah is this prophet. This is under number four. And Isaiah had this really weird vision in which there was there was a temple and he was in the temple. Now the temple's the what? The hot spot of God. Isaiah is a common dude. He's not a priest, he's not the high priest. Does he belong in the temple? No way. Okay? He's in the temple where he doesn't belong in any way. And he's in the direct presence of God. Um, 
in Isaiah chapter 6, let me, let me read for you. There's this uh, verse 1. I'll skip some of this just for the sake of time. But verse 1, it, it gives us the time period. It says the year in which Uzziah died. He said, I had his vision. And I saw the Lord. And he was high. Basically, I'm in the temple. I'm in the holy of holies. Knew he didn't belong there in any way. And he's, he, he's in God's presence. And completely, the best word is overcome. He's overcome by God's holiness. And the way he writes about it, it's poetic, but it's almost scary. From his perspective, it's extremely scary. And so uh, in, uh, in verse 5, he says, woe to me. That's, that's sort of you know, vernacular. I'm hosed. Like, I'm a goner. There, there, is no, well, there is no hope. Woe is me, I cried. He says, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. That's moral purity. I don't have my moral stuff together. I know that for sure. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. Now in verse 6, instead of being destroyed, absolutely wiped out. There's this really interesting thing that happens. He says, then one of, uh, instead, a, a seraph, or seraphim. Seraphim is this weird creature. It's this like angelic creature, and it's got six wings. And two of the wings cover its face, two of them cover its feet, and, um, and then two of them are flying. And the idea of covering your face and your feet is walking into royalty with the sense of, I don't even deserve to look at you. And the, you know, the dirtiest part of a person in the ancient world is their feet. I'm covering, I just, I don't even deserve to be here. And so approaching God in this way. One of the seraphim flew to me, and then it says, this is really interesting. It says, with a live coal, it went to the, the fire pit where the fire was burning. And the, and the seraphim picked out a coal, a hot burning coal, ouch. And it, and it takes it in these tongs, and it flew to him. Um, and now, instead of the temple being defiled, because think about it. If someone walked into the temple or did something in there, you brought uncleanliness into a clean place. What's the transfer? Now, you made that place unclean, right? That's the way this works. Instead of that, though, instead of the temple being defiled by Isaiah, um, with it, it touched my mouth, and he said, this, is, this was unheard of before this time. He says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for, it says. Um, now, this, this is a radical, radical picture, because see, here's the concept. Typically, always in the past, anytime someone, a person, would interact with, remember some of those categories like diseased skin, you know, leprosy and things like that, what would happen? It would make you unclean. The transfer goes, you know, if I'm clean and I touch it, now I'm unclean. Um, if you touch a dead body, how does, how does the impurity go? I don't make it clean. It makes me unclean. All these different things, someone who has, who's bleeding or uh, bodily fluids, if I can't get near them or it makes me unclean. This is why in the New Testament we read all these stories and it seems really weird to us. Where it says someone, someone's walking down the street saying, unclean, unclean. Because they had all these concepts. I don't want to be ritually unclean. You keep that person away, if at all possible. And so we see this idea. Now, how is that going to happen? Isaiah has no idea. How is this going to be made? Who knows? But there's another prophet around this time. And his name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel also has a vision. He's got a really, really interesting vision as well. Ezekiel's vision 
he sees, he sees a new temple. Remember, we've understood the temple. It's a hot spot of God's presence. It's where people have to go to interact. But there's the paradox of I want them, but I can't get too close. Well, Ezekiel has this vision. And in this vision, he sees the temple. And there's this little tiny stream, trickles of water coming out of the temple. That's weird. Water doesn't come out of the temple. Little tiny stream of water coming out of the temple. And as he watches it, it becomes a, like a brook. It's got more water. And as he watches it further, it starts watering the desert. If you know anything about the Middle East over there, it's just, I mean, it's desert. And it starts watering and things start growing and it's beautiful. And it says, so much water comes out, it runs all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea, it's like so much salt. There's no life in there. Life cannot happen in there. Life can't happen around it. It's just dead. (laughs) And there's so much of this rejuvenating water. That it's, it fills the Dead Sea and life just starts sprouting. What is this a picture of? This is Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> this is, it's that picture of, oh yeah, creation lost is one day going to be creation restored. And so there's this hope. Now he says there still needs to be holiness in the temple. Ezekiel talks about this. But something's going to happen where it goes this way. Because see... The way it's worked in the past, again, is any time, if I'm impure, I I can't go into the temple because it goes this way. Isaiah and Ezekiel have this vision that one day things are going to change, that it's going to start going the other way. Somehow the temple, somehow the presence of God, the hot spot of God, somehow, we have no idea, is going to somehow fix all my impurity, fix all my brokenness. And it's not just me taking a bath or doing this or that sort of thing. How? We have no idea. (laughs) So there's 400 silent years is what they call them. The prophets have ceased. Israel has come back from exile and living in this sort of stagnant place waiting for another prophet to come. And all of a sudden, this guy Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus arrives on the scene announcing... What's his message that he says? First thing he says, middle thing he says, last thing he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom means rule. God's rule is coming. And he said, but it's coming through me. Now, here's the really interesting part. Matthew 8, Jesus touches a leper. Okay. Now, how does it normally go? Remember when if, if someone's impure and the contact contact which way does it go both become impure right jesus touches him but jesus doesn't become impure the man becomes pure in fact he's healed right he sees this woman with an issue of blood she approaches him secretly touches him he turns on who touched me she's an impure person she's healed there's this there's this dead boy the dead body these are all the things that the the purity law said don't say this this and that because it'll make you impure and it would anyone else it would make him impure and yet jesus all of these people he comes to them and he touches them and now the purity impurity direction thing goes the other way they're pure they're made whole here's what jesus is saying i'm the coal that coal that was brought out that touched isaiah's lips that's me more than that i am the hot spot of god because that was the prophecy one day the center of the temple would somehow because it's so pure and so good go out but not destroy it would go out and purify all that is around it and so he promised he said i am this powerful one 
I am the very source of life. And it's by being close to me. And I'm going to gather people around me that we will, through this kingdom of God thing, change the world. And so Jesus establishes a community. We call it church today. Not church building or this group. The church. The people who are in, invited into the kingdom of God, the unclean. And that's what's really crazy. That's what, that's what people can get their minds around. Is it's, people are so blown away by, who is he going to? He's going to the people who are immoral and unclean. And he says, the kingdom of God's available to you now. You don't have to get cleaned up. Why? Is it because that Old Testament stuff was junk? No, it was exactly right. <laughs> but I'm the very presence of God who, who comes out and makes you pure. It's the presence of God going out. And so God's holiness meets his people and he changes them forever. And so all throughout the New Testament, when it speaks of this idea of holiness, it speaks of God has now created a people. We talked about this the other week. We are the temple. We are we are we are bricks in the building of the temple that he says, I'm sending you out into the world, showing the world the grace and the mercy of God. And it's like this picture that from from Jesus, that we get to stand in the stream, this river, Ezekiel's river that goes out and it brings life to people. And that's the question we always have to ask ourselves. Is, OK, as I'm have I been overcome by this God? Have I been overcome by his holiness in such a way that I surrender and I step into this kingdom of God thing? In this stream, you know, Jesus said, one, he said, uh, if you follow me, if you step into my kingdom thing, he said, streams of living water will bubble up from you. He's just picking up on Ezekiel's river. Streams of living water will come out of you, not because they're your own power, but because there's a foreign power inside you that is going around making all things Clean. This is the story of the Bible. And at the very end, you go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Remember, we're, tra- we're tracing these ideas from beginning to end. The very last book of the Bible, Jesus, through John, he has this vision, another vision, in Revelation 21 and 22. And Ezekiel's river is there again. Go read Revelation 21 and 22. It's Ezekiel's river. This was that promise. And what we see happening is that the story of the Bible concludes with John's vision of new, restored creation. Ezekiel's river is it's flowing out. God's presence is creating the Garden of Eden, but completed. It's a city garden. Where his people are with him forever. And all, all of creation, new creation, is absolutely overwhelmed by the glory of God. Completely overwhelmed and made new. 